There's a story of a man who moved to a retirement community to spend the rest of his life there. He wasn't there long until he had started to make quite a few friends amongst the people that lived there, and he was especially attracted to one of the women there, and she was attracted to him. So they spent a lot of time together. One night, he finally asked her. He proposed her, asking her to marry him. He woke up the next morning, remembered the proposal, but forgot whether she had said yes or no. So he went and found her and said, I'm really embarrassed to ask you this. I proposed last night, but I can't remember if you said yes or no. And she said, oh, thank goodness. I'd remember the proposal, but I couldn't remember who proposed to me. (laughs) You see, I think we can have the same reaction when it comes to New Year's resolutions. We're very excited, we're very eager to make these changes in our lives, and then we soon forget about them. Maybe that's happened to you. Vince Lombardi wrote a book titled Commitment to Excellence, and in it he talks about the first time he gave a pep talk. He spoke to the Green Bay Packers as their head coach at the start of their 1959 season. You see, the 1958 season was and still is the worst season for the Green Bay Packers in franchise history. They won only one game. So Lombardi was wondering if his first pep talk as they entered the new season should be a long speech or just a short talk. And the coach normally would get to the locker room 30 minutes before the players were to take the field, but Lombardi didn't show up. He left his players wondering where this great coach was. Ten minutes before the Packers are to take the field for the start of the new season and still no coach. And finally, with only three minutes left, Lombardi busts through the doors and begins pacing back and forth in front of his players. Finally, he said, all eyes on me. Gentlemen, we will be successful this year if we focused on three things and three things only. Your family, your religion, and the Green Bay Packers. They went on to win seven games with the first year as Lombardi as their coach. You see, it's that time of year where people around us, and maybe even you yourself, are making New Year's resolutions. And we have great intentions to make next year better than the last year, but oftentimes our mind becomes clouded and we quickly forget about them. And just as Lombardi challenged his Green Bay Packers to focus on just a few things as they entered a new season, I think it's a good reminder for us as Christians to focus on just a few things as we enter a new year. So just like Coach Lombardi, I have a challenge for us. In 2016, focus on three things, and three things only. Love God, love others, and serve. Now, I'm not saying if you do these things that all your problems will magically disappear, all the hardships will not happen in your life, but I do believe with all my heart that you'll find greater purpose and you'll have greater fulfillment. So this morning, we're going to take a look at two passages passages to see what it means to focus on these three things. And unfortunately, unlike Lombardi, it's going to take me longer than three minutes, so please bear with me. First, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 22. What does it mean to love God? You see, in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two elite religious groups at the time, were kind of battling it out. 
They were trying to pin Jesus by asking him these questions and trying to get an answer out of him where they could turn it around on him. And they had been going back and forth, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And we're going to pick up in verse 34 where the Pharisees get their shot at Jesus. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus responds to them by quoting Scripture. Deuteronomy 6.5, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And here were the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him to say that this is the greatest commandment. So that they could turn around and say, well, what about all of these? If this is the only important one, then do these not matter? But Jesus doesn't fall for the trap that the Pharisees set. He doesn't have some process of elimination where he weeds out maybe the not-so-important ones. Rather, his answer is simple. Love God. So what does it mean to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Well, it means that he, God, becomes the object of our worship. And when I say the word worship, you probably think of what we just finished doing, singing songs. But there's a book that I've read titled Revolve, and it's helped me better understand what true worship is, and I've come to the conclusion that we as Christians, oftentimes because of our human nature, get a distorted view of what true worship is. So here are four myths that sometimes we fall in the trap of thinking when it comes to worship. The first myth is that worship is all about me. The second myth, worship happens one day a week. Most people would probably guess on Sunday. The third myth, worship is just part of my life. And the fourth myth, worship is a religious activity. These are some myths that we as Christians can fall into the trap of thinking, and it distorts our view of what true worship is. And if we're to truly love God, then we must better understand what worship looks like. So here are the truths. Worship is not about me, but God. See, worship isn't about you. Just as scientists once thought that the universe was geocentric, that everything revolved around the earth, Sometimes we as Christians can fall into the trap of thinking that this thing called worship is anthropocentric or that it all revolves around us. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about your style. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your mood. It's not about what you need. It's not about what happens in this hour at church. It's not about an attempt to be religious. Worship is about one thing and one thing only bringing glory, honor, and pleasure to God. And until we realize that worship was created by God and for God, then we will never understand what worship truly is. Myth number two, the truth is worship is not just for Sunday, but every day. King David in Psalm 34 says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak His praises. Worship doesn't just take place in this hour one day a week. 
We're supposed to worship God when we wake up, when we hear our kids laugh, when money's tight, when things are going well, when cancer strikes. In all that we say and do, we're to worship God. Worship is a constant endeavor, just as King David modeled. It doesn't take place just one day a week. Truth number three, worship is not a part of my life. Rather, it's all of my life. It's not something that we have our life and we just tack it onto our already busy schedule. Rather, all of our life funnels through worship. Because we worship whatever's at the center of our life. It can be a physical object on this earth. It can be money. Whatever that object is, everything we say and do revolves around what we worship. Our decisions, the words that we speak, are made with that object, the love of whatever we worship in mind. And worship, the goal of worship, is to put God at the focal point of our life, to the center of our life. Because everything we say, everything we do, whether we're in a church building or not, is an act of worship. It's not part of my life, but all of my life. And the fourth truth to the myth, worship is not about a religion, but a relationship. Worship is our response to God's goodness, love, and the relationship we have with Him made available by Jesus. You see, when we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, with all that we are, then our whole life is an act of worship. It's not about us. It doesn't take place just on Sundays. It's our whole life, and it's about a relationship. When we love God, He becomes the object of our worship. When we love God, it should also be reflected in our relationship with Him. Our relationship with Him. If I ask you to think of some of the great relationships you have in your life right now, chances are, first off, you know about the person, and you communicate frequently with them. If you think of that person in your life right now, or those people in your life, you probably call them, talk to them in person, FaceTime them, Skype them, text messages, all of these ways we have to communicate. You probably do that frequently, because every good relationship requires frequent communication. And if we're to love God, then we have to have a relationship with Him, which means we communicate frequently with Him. And one of the ways we communicate with God is through prayer. Prayer is something that Jesus modeled for us. It's something that he commands us to do, and it's something he taught his disciples to do in Matthew chapter 6. And prayer is only made available to us by Jesus. You see, the sin in my life, the sin in your life, separates us from God. That communication we once had, Adam and Eve once had, is broken. And Hebrews chapter 6 says, Jesus is now our high priest. He came paid the price for our sin, and now he is the mediator. He is the lifeline that we have to God. Every relationship requires frequent communication. It also requires that you know about the person or about the individual. If you go back and think about the person you just thought of, the great relationships in your life, you probably know quite a bit about them, maybe more than you want to know. You know the things they like. You know the things they don't like. You know about their character. You know what they want to do. And the same goes for a relationship with God. We have to know about God. And the Bible is God's love letter to us as a church. And in it, when we spend time in it, we find, about, 
find out about the things that God likes, the things that God doesn't like. We find out about his character. We find out how he calls us to live as Christians. You see, if we're to love God, we have to have a relationship with him, which requires that we know about him and have frequent communication with him. And because of the relationship we have with God, it then causes us to worship him. The first and greatest commandment, love God. Jesus says the second is like it, love others, starting in verse 39. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. You see, the religious leaders of the time had made following Jesus or made religion so challenging, so difficult. They had made over 600 man-made laws that you had to follow to be in good standing. And now they come to Jesus saying, which one is the greatest? And Jesus says, love God and love others. If you do these two things, then all the demands and the prophets are based on them. They should naturally happen. Lying, cheating, stealing, using the Lord's name in vain, having idols in our life, those don't happen if we love God and love others. So let's just simplify this. When we love others, we don't cheat. We don't steal. We don't lie to them. When we love God, we don't have any other idols in our life. We don't use his name in vain. Jesus blows them away with this response. Love God and love other people. There's a story of a young child who once wrote a letter to God. He said, Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in my family, and I can never do it. You see, loving people is often easier said than done, because our human nature sometimes drags us into doing the opposite of what we're supposed to do. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, I know, Stephen, we're supposed to love other people. Next, come on. But my question for you is, do your actions reflect the love you have for other people? Do your actions show genuine care and concern for the people around you? Do your words encourage and uplift? Or instead, do you gossip? Do you criticize? Are you cynical about people? Because when we love people, those things don't exist. And sometimes we can love people by not doing something. By not giving in to the temptation of the flesh. We should love others. We should love others because... It's a command from God, not only here in Matthew chapter 22, but also in Leviticus 19.18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a command from God. John chapter 13, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Love each other. Jesus is telling his disciples this. And many scholars think that Jesus refers to this as a new commandment because He's raising the bar. He's taking it up a notch. He's no longer saying to love love each other. Rather, he's saying love each other just as I have loved you. He's raising the bar. We should love people because it's a command from God. And like we just heard, we should also love people because Jesus Christ himself modeled it. 
Going on in verse 34 of John 13, he says, Just as I have loved you, you should love other people. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. Washing the disciples' feet, an act of love, an act of service. See, Jesus didn't come to this earth and start throwing out commands, setting expectations for everybody else, but he himself lived by them. He modeled them in his own life. We should love others because Jesus modeled what it looks like to do that. Lastly, we should also love other people because it points people, points others towards God. John 13, 35, Jesus says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus' time before his crucifixion was coming to an end. He knew that he would no longer physically be walking next to them as they went from town to town sharing the good news. So he tells them, love each other. And love each other because when the world sees the love you have for others, they will know that you are my disciples. They'll know that you are my disciples. So the question is, does the world see the love we have for each other? Does our community see the love we have for each other? Do your coworkers, your friends, your children, your family, your neighbors, do they see the love that you have for other people? Because if they do, then it points them towards God. So we love others because it's a command from God, because Jesus modeled it, and because it points others towards God. When we love God, we love others. And when we love others, we serve. We serve, third point. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Faith without works, faith without good deeds, faith without service is dead. When we love God and we love others, we serve. Now, it's not the acts of service, it's not the good deeds that save us by any means. We're saved by faith through grace. But when we love God, our natural response is to honor Him and serve other people around Him, just as Jesus modeled in His own life. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give His life as a ransom for many. As we look through the Gospels, we can find time and time again where Jesus served people around him. And ultimately, like he says here, his whole life was an act of service. For he came to the earth to die so that we might be forgiven. We should serve because God created us to serve. God created us to serve, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us. Because we as Christians are now committed to Jesus Christ. He has saved us and we live a new life and our commitment is to him. We're also committed to living a life of service just as Jesus modeled. And we all have different gifts, talents, skills, abilities, and I know this because 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. We all have different skills, 
talents, and abilities. And it's meant to be that way. God designed us that way. And it can be easy for us to think that our skills, talents, abilities aren't as important as other people. But let me tell you, God gave you a gift. He gave you a talent and ability, and he created you to use it. And I assure you, it's vitally important to accomplishing the mission of leading and equipping people to follow Jesus, no matter how big the act of service or how small. Here's an example. Every Sunday was the same. We would take our seats in the same pew in the balcony, and each week they would be there, sharpened with the point ready to use. The yellow pencils. I never thought much about the perfectly sharpened yellow pencils until I happened to be at the church office on a Tuesday morning. A dapper older gentleman brushed by with a box of pencils in one hand and a sharpener in the other. My mind flashed back to the pencils in the pews. And with a bent brow, I asked someone, is he the one who sharpens the pew pencils each week? It was confirmed. Each week, this man quietly breezed in and out with few taking notice. And the beauty of it all, he didn't want anyone to notice. He didn't want recognition, a pat on the back, or even a thank you. Sharpening the pencils each week was his way of serving the Lord. There are so many things that need to be done in our world. So many things that need to be done in our community. So many things that need to be done in your neighborhood. So many things that need to be done here at the church. And God has given us all abilities, talents, and skills so that we could come together as the body of Christ and do those things. No matter how big, no matter how small, you are needed as a part of the kingdom. Lastly, love motivates us to serve. Love motivates us to serve. Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. After all, that's what Christ did for us. The reason he came to this earth to serve us in such a way by going to the cross was because he loved us. And it's the love that we have for God, the love that we have for other people that should motivate us to serve. And I do think sometimes we can serve with the wrong motivation. Do you serve just to be seen? Do you serve just for praise of humans? Do you serve to compete with others? Do you serve to use this as a weapon when talking with other people that you carry a heavier load? See, just as Scripture talks about us giving of our money, we shouldn't give grudgingly or under compulsion. We should give with a joyful heart. I think the same can be said about how we give of our time in service. If you can't give with a cheerful heart, then don't give. If you're serving to compete or win the approval of men or to use it to bash other people down, then let me tell you, don't serve. Love is what motivated Christ to come to this earth and serve us. And love should be the only thing that motivates us to serve the people around us. When we love God, we can't help but love others. And when we love God and love others, we can't help but serve. So this week, as you reflect on last year and look forward to 2016, here's the challenge I have for you. 
in 2016 focus on three things and three things only. Love God, love others, and serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to be here worshiping your name today, learning what you have to speak into our lives and how we can better our lives by obeying your commands. God, I pray this year that's upon us that you would draw close to us, that we would draw close to you, that we would better love you, that we would better love those around us, and that we would be involved in serving because of the love we have for you and those around us. It's your name, your name we pray. Amen. If we as a church can help you focus on any of these three things this year, I hope that you let us know. Again, we're going to be taking offering in just a little bit. And on your connection card, there's a spot to let us know how we can pray for you. There's a spot for you to let us know that you want to be plugged into a group of believers in a small group this year that can encourage you, uplift you, and help you stay focused on God for the new year. And if you want to be involved in service here at Northside this year, there's a box to check for that as well. If God's calling you to do any of those things, please do that. Drop that in the plate, and we'd love to help you. Let's stand as we sing.